0: Hello again, and welcome to part two of the Black Lives Texas series on COVID's impact on education in Austin, Texas. Today, we're diving into how COVID has impacted food distribution and access for students and families. We're your hosts. I'm Tracy Lowe.
1: And I'm Ricardo Lowe. But before we start, we want to acknowledge that this episode is coming out on June 19th, also known as Juneteenth. For those who don't know, Juneteenth is a celebration of the end of slavery in Texas, While it is celebrated nationwide, the holiday is rooted in Texas history. Every year, we celebrate Juneteenth to remember the end of slavery after the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation declared all slaves free in 1863. Many slave owners did not comply with this proclamation, however. It wasn't until a Union Army general arrived in Galveston on June 18th and read an order announcing that all slaves were freed on June 19th And that's how we learned of our emancipation. Texas was the first state to recognize Juneteenth as an official state holiday in 1980. Today, only five states do not recognize this holiday. Jumping back into our topic for the day. So we laid the groundwork here on what is happening in our community in Austin. According to a study published in 2016, one in four households in Austin is considered food insecure. This can range from households that reduce the quality, variety and desirability of their diets due to financial resource and availability to households who reduce or disrupt food intake throughout the year because the household lacked funds or other resources. Causes of food insecurity are often thought of as financial, but other issues such as food deserts, transportation, and access are also factors that can lead to food insecurity.
0: One way families make sure children have access to food is through free and reduced lunch programs. Over 50% of Austin Independent School District students utilize the free and reduced lunch program. And according to the Central Texas Food Bank, 65% of those needing their assistance are people of color. Black and brown students are facing additional challenges. How do you learn remotely and be an engaged student when you're not able to access basic necessities?
1: Now add COVID to the mix. Let's jump in with Mercedes Perry, who is a community engagement coordinator with Austin Area Urban League, to hear about her experiences with Urban League and as a former AISD parent support specialist. So we know that one in four households in Austin is food insecure and uh, many residents living in East Austin. And when we say East Austin, of course we mean East of 35, but we're also talking about within that Eastern Crescent, which of course might expand a little bit on the other Mm -hmm. side of 35. But um, yeah, so we, we know that the district is providing meals to help contribute to that level of food insecurity. Can you talk to us about some of the issues of food insecurity that you've noticed with, you know, parents, in in the district and families
2: yeah this one's hard too because um because just in my current role you know um everybody's calling the league because they need food and water and stuff and that's not something that we've done historically and so i'm literally i'm literally trying to like write a program so that i can use get the the volunteers that signed up out to like get you know Basically, starting throwing the logistics together for something a program the Urban League hasn't had, because there's no easier way for us to do it and um, collaborate with organizations that are already doing it. And so, um, but everybody needs food and water.
1: I know when we first met, you were you were telling us that you were a parent support specialist at one time with AISD, and I think we wanted we wanted to understand a little bit about what parents are going through, specifically black parents. Um, It's so easy to get understanding from parents who are white and AISD, but um, there's a lot going on as we've talked, you know, countless times before. um, And we really want to get the black perspective. So uh, we know that one of your former roles was a parent support specialist with AISD. Can you speak a little about that role and what you did during that time?
2: Yeah, so in that in the role of a parent support specialist, I really was like um, a liaison between campus administration and teachers and families and the community. So it was kind of like a three-way liaison going on. Um, and in this role, I also played, um, depending on the parent support specialist, of course, but in my role... Um, that also looks like supporting families in whatever way they need the support so that they can reach the academic learning goals um, that have been set for their children. So that's the overhaul, like overarching goal of a parent support specialist is that we want to help our our families reach the learning goals. And so we're all trying to be engaged in what that learning goal is, but... um, what we're, what I learned as a parent support specialist and what I think family engagement and why it's a whole study in a field now. And what we've all learned is that, um, we're not actually engaging families. Um, we're just welcoming them in and asking them to basically help run a school that's undersourced and under-resourced in most cases. And so, um, in that role, I did a lot of um negotiating, I did a lot of um mediating uh coaching, facilitating um and crisis management just if families were just going through it, and um there was a crisis, then I will go to your house, I will call whatever, find the resource you need, drop it off you know, so like um if I know there's a big need on campus. There's one adult on campus who's focused on trying to fill that need, no matter where I find it. And so when um, it's a very important role for a campus or school community that doesn't have everything it needs to be a successful learning environment. My flip side of that is it's this important role for all families, um, even if you are wealthy and white. Um, Everybody needs support reaching that learning goal. But at the end of the day, the the main focus of my job was to make black families and brown families feel like they could hit their learning goals. And that meant trying to remove whatever barrier there was, um, to keeping their children from getting there. Period.
0: And so when thinking about that particular crisis management component we know that this is basically the COVID-19 pandemic is is essentially a crisis at this moment. And there are a lot of parent support specialists who are working with families right now. And so just in thinking back on your work as a parent support specialist, can you talk about like what they're going through right now with families?
2: I would say that... Um... Even in my role now, it's daunting. So I could not imagine right now how daunting it feels not to be able to access um, the families that I was supporting or would be supporting theoretically if I was still in that type of a role. You really take on, you know, the the burdens and the needs and the hopes and the dreams and desires of those families and. Um, they are already in crisis-like situations and a lot of times that you're... Co- and you know this, so you're like case-managing families that are dealing with crises and supporting, you know, the the campus social worker and the community and schools social worker and all the SPED coordinators. You know, you're constantly supporting anybody who's dealing with a crisis, which is where all of our black and brown kids are. And so it, it's just like now i'm worried you know even as not being a parent support specialist uh that's just now i know that any issue that i was trying to set support and help someone through and empower someone through is exasperated it doesn't matter what that parent support thinks they're doing at this point those families are at home in this global pandemic and we don't have true access to them and trying to make sure that they can be supported. And right now, with the way all of the systems are failing and are just overwhelmed with um the inability to to, to uh provide what people need in an, an effective and efficient way, I I honestly would hate to be a parent support specialist right now. I mean, yeah, it would be too it would probably be too heavy on my heart. It really you- would.
1: Well, you you, sp- you spoke a little bit about your current role. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you work with the Austin Urban League, right? Yes. C- can you can you talk a little bit about what you do there and, and what you're doing right now for families if you're still having conversations with them?
2: Yeah, so right now it's pretty heartbreaking still because you, there's not enough. There's not enough to help people. People are out of work or they're working 10 to 12 hours and their kids are at home. And, you know, I'm hearing all the stories of, or seeing all the anecdotal stories of, you know, my homegirls who are like, who's still homeschooling, right? Like, we in week 15, I don't know what my kids is doing. I work 10 hours still. I'm an essential worker. I don't have time to come to the house. I don't got enough energy Matter of fact, I was ready to fight my kids last week, you know, so like <laughs> it's just like all learning is gone out the, in those type of traditional ways. Right. So I've really just been trying to, like, reframe the situation in some situations, if domestic violence and just complete neglect aren't involved because there's so many strains and stressors that that family has already been generationally going through that they haven't overcome. Um, so those children are just in a terrible situation, to be frank. Um, and the school was a safe space, and and the parent support specialists and all the programs and stuff, because those adults just don't got it together yet. And um, and now those, you know, so now that's an exasperated um, gap. Right. Of achievement and learning goals and all of these things when really like the the brown and black families who have been having enough energy to focus and put a little bit of uh, energy toward their families after still working all day. um, They've learned and started to like be like, what are my kids learning? Right. Like (laughs) they've been in school all year. Mm. And I feel like they don't know what they supposed to know. And so to me, it's been like a blessing and a curse because kids have been sent home with the average family who I believe cares and has hopes and dreams. I believe that about all families. And so now you realize that like the system has been failing our black kids, right? Like in real ways. And we've been been believing these adults and these teachers and these administrators and these reports and these scores and these grades. And now our kids are at home with us for three or four months and they can't read. And now you get it, right? Like, as a parent, you get it. I've been trying to get you to get it, but you can't because you're dealing with fighting the system Mm. in white schools. You still are a teacher, too. I need you to realize your role, right? Like, and I can't... I feel like I say this around y'all specifically a lot. Like, black parents needing space and grace. You know, like, I can't get you there to realize what your role is if you still combating the system inside of this white institutional educational space, trying to make sure your kid ain't being mistreated, trying to make sure your kid is getting what they deserve, trying to make sure... At the end of the day, school is for learning, I need your kid to learn. If they ain't learning at school, we need to figure out where they gonna learn at. That's kind of just where I, my radical black thought has gone. <laughs> and so I think that like, you know, it's been a blessing and a curse for families to be at home in this situation. And in this role, it's been a blessing and a curse because I can't help everybody. You know, if you're not working and you need rent money and you need this and y'all need this because your kids are home all day and you're, you if you're not inside AISD and you're right on the precipice and they're not giving meals out on the same schedules, you know, so it's like it's just a disaster. It really it, it's a it's a it's a it's a disaster. Um, I, I I don't know what, how else to put it.
0: Yeah. And you made a lot of points in thinking about just the stress, like the amount of stress that's put on families. These are unexpected circumstances. And you phrased it in a way that we haven't heard anybody say it is a disaster. Like it is a disaster.
1: This is something that is so frustrating about COVID right now. Normally with a natural disaster, there is a specific place that needs assistance or a place where efforts can be focused. But this is impacting everyone, so resources are getting tight and states are having to find ways to support educational institutions like never before. We decided to talk with Alejandro Delgado, the deputy chief of staff for the Texas Education Agency. The TEA is the state agency that oversees primary and secondary public education in the state.
0: But in terms of thinking about the food insecurity that's happening across Texas, Um, And I know you mentioned the TEA website has a lot of different resources that districts across the nation can connect to. I know, for instance, I think earlier I saw one where you can type in your school and find a meal locator service. So can you speak to the different levels of food insecurities across different regions in the state, Um, if you have information on that?
3: Yeah, so I can't speak to the levels of food insecurity. So, So child nutrition, interestingly enough, is not run through TEA. It's run through the Texas Department of Agriculture. Uh, so we've actually talked to them a lot more the past six weeks than we like, ever have you know, since I've been working at TEA. Uh, and, 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 and so we've had to collaborate a lot to get that information out. So you know, one, of the, one of the cool collaborations that we've seen happen is the Meal Finder website. So we, we host a website called texasschools.gov where you, know, you type in your address and you can see the rating of your school. Uh, you know, how well it does in its star tests and academic performance. And so what we did is we basically imported the data from, from Texas Department of Agriculture on, like, where to pick up meals with, you know, our geolocation data on schools. And parents can find, uh, and families and community members actually can find where to pick up meals. We've done something similar with, with frontline childcare, where now uh, you can find, uh, you know, childcare across the state kind of via our, our, our website. And so really proud of that. Unfortunately, like that has not, um, I don't have any specific information on food security other than kind of what we see in the news and what we hear anecdotally from districts and superintendents, that it's a gigantic issue. Um, I mean, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen the video and pictures from, from even here in Austin, uh, where the, the lines to pick up food are, are, um, are, are, uh, you know they, they snake corners and they, they wrap around blocks and so really really tough and really sad I mean I appreciate TDA and USDA actually for for relaxing a lot of their requirements because that's really the, one of the few ways that, that districts have been able to provide all these meals because otherwise they're only just allowed to like serve meals in cafeterias at a specific time to specific numbers of groups so uh you know the the the, the federal and state government in this case has done a you know, pretty good job of, of um, you know, uh, stepping up to the moment. But, you know, it's just exposed, I think, just like digital divide, exposed that people need food.
0: <laughs> students are facing more obstacles than ever before, from how they're learning to just the sheer amount of stress from living through a pandemic. Adding food insecurity into the mix makes things even more difficult. So what are students expected to try and accomplish right now and into the future?
1: They're expected, you know, these kids are expected to to finish off the semester in some way or another, right? So, like, what is the mm-hmm. TEA doing to, like, really change the policies related to grading and student assessment requirements and attendance? What are they doing to make that process a little bit easier, I guess?
3: That's a good question. I mean, you know, looking at our policies, we have relaxed a lot of our attendance, our grading our, 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 you know, graduation requirements. There's a lot, of, a lot of waivers now. I mean, you can, you can go on our website and you can see a list of waivers that we have waived that have never been waived before. You know, starting frankly with like accountability, uh, and, and testing. There hasn't been a year where there hasn't been state testing, and and we waived it uh, this year after the Department of Education provided, uh, it for us, because that's, it's kind of how it works with accountability and testing is like, if, if the federal government says we don't have to do it, uh, then that's our green light to say we, you know, districts don't have to do it. Um, but, you know, and like I mentioned earlier around attendance, districts don't have to take attendance anymore, uh, for the rest of the school year. Um, because as long as they can, uh, you know, just tell us that they're educating their kids, um, that, that that that's enough for school finance to flow. Um, so, you know, there's other instances. I mean, for grading, I think one of the we've been we, we, the guidance we've given is like, you know, it's a local decision on how you want to grade. You know, obviously, these are very difficult circumstances. We, we don't recommend like you grading too hard. We also don't recommend you like just giving out all A's because that's not helpful either. Um, you know, we, we gave some guidance last week on on incompletes like we it, it gets complicated because this is a domino effect. Right. Uh, so if you do give an incomplete to a kid, how does that impact the kid later on with with credits uh, or like getting into college? So so districts have a lot on their plates right now. And we, we've I think you know the general principle is to be flexible, uh, is to give as max flexibility to districts uh, as they're making these decisions. And that's that's kind of how where our guidance has gone. I think, though, uh, something that's to be mindful is that is that while this is a very difficult crisis, uh, for you know, you mentioned food, digital divide, uh, you know, just like stress. It, 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 you know, the kids who this is this is going to be really tough on kids academically, right? Like they're they basically finished the school year with with the direct like instruction from a teacher in early March. Um, you know, for the kids who are already far behind, they're going to be even further behind. So so it's this tension that we've encountered. Uh, of like on the one hand you want to be flexible and and make sure you you meet people where they're at, but on the other hand, like this is when actually kids need need like academic like support and rigor the most because otherwise yeah, everyone's going to be starting from behind and you know especially kids that look like you know me and you you know and and um, so so it's so it's not an easy answer to say just give them what they need. It's a tough time. It's like well, but there, there's kids' lives at stake that this is going to affect them. There was a a study that I read um, or a news article that I read that that, that, that cited a study from a, a teacher strike in Argentina that lasted for 90 days. So kids weren't in, in school for 90 days and, and it impacted their, their their life outcomes, not being in school during that time. Um, and so, you know, we're very concerned as I know districts are too uh, of, of how does this impact our, our kids who need it the most uh, academically. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a fine line that we have to we have to navigate as a TA because, you know, we, we like set the vision and the like expectation, right? We, we, we don't want to necessarily lower the expectation, but we also want to realize that this is a like once-in-a-century moment in terms of how difficult it is. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's kind of where we're at with all that. And, and, and all, all that, like uh, the, the guiding principle and the vision – is is what, you know, eventually percolates to what we actually communicate in guidance.
0: Now, what does that actually look like on the ground? For that, we're going back to Dr. Holly, the equity officer for Austin ISD. So I know you mentioned a lot about food, tech, and telehealth as three areas that are now connected, and they have to be connected because these are the primary needs of students. And then thinking about food security specifically in Austin, um, we know that one in four households in Austin is food insecure. And many of these residents are living east of I-35. A lot of them don't have access to grocery stores that are within, say, a mile of their home, between one and 10 miles. So can you talk to us about how this issue of food insecurity has impacted the
4: students in AISD? Yeah, so um, the good news is um We were prepared and are prepared for the food distribution because uh, about two-thirds of our students receive uh, free breakfast and uh, they qualify for uh, free breakfast and lunch. And so this was a transition to really packaging the meals that we serve. But what we've done during this pandemic is uh, we've had opportunities to serve caregivers. We've also had the opportunity to uh, to provide food to people who are, who do not attend AISD. Um, we have uh, uh, our, our Texas agency that deals with our food has has let us know that we can serve anyone uh, nineteen and under uh, with regard to food. And so, and we've not, and, and my understanding is we've not run over, out of food uh, with those two meals with breakfast and. Um, breakfast and lunch. And so the district has uh, really done, I think an amazing job of making sure food is available. And we do know that we have those essential workers who can't always get to the food distribution or or meal distribution places. And so that's why our relationship and our connection with the uh, Central Texas food bank and others is so crucial. So if someone can't get there when we're distributing meals, um there are other uh, there are other groups that we're partnering with to make sure. And Austin Voices, one of our community partners, uh, works with Central Texas Food Bank. Uh so so yes, the district has be has really been about the business of taking care of the basic needs of our students and our families. And even when we have uh we have holidays like or days off, uh uh what wouldn't have been a student day. A couple of weeks ago, we provided additional meals so that students would not go hungry on that day when, you know, we typically didn't have a, a school day. So uh, there's been a lot of creative work and it's been good food, healthy food. It's not just been, it's not been, you know, poor food or, uh, you know, lacking nutrition. Our, we've gotten a lot of national attention for the the health the healthy food that we provide and serve our students who are low income. So that's been uh, something that uh, has helped the district really meet the needs of the community during the crisis.
1: Right. And Um, y'all are also distributing uh, meals on the weekend as well, right?
4: Yes. Y'all started doing that last week. Yeah, we did. And yeah, so, so we are providing, we're, we're back to doing that. And uh, again, it's very difficult for people to, to weather this, this pandemic without the basics of food. And uh, we will continue that through the summer as well.
1: According to their website, this summer, AISD will provide and prepare meals for children under the age of 19 and for all students who are utilizing special education resources or are currently enrolled in school, regardless of their age. Curbside meals will be offered at more than 15 sites. Austin ISD school buses would deliver meals throughout the community at more than 60 locations.
0: To learn more, we'll put a link in our show notes about how to access these meals. And we'll note that caregiver meals are also available at this time. According to Dr. Holly, when we spoke with her at the end of April, they had served over 400,000 meals. So we can see how Austin schools are tackling food distribution they seem to have found a way to still provide for the communities that currently serve, but what is the rest of the city doing? What about those who need additional services this summer? For that, we talked to Dr. Kazike Prince, who is a consultant and a senior policy advisor and education coordinator for Austin's mayoral office.
1: I, w- I want to hop in real quick. And I, I know that you, you, you spoke on food insecurity and, you know, we're, we're heading towards the summer and, we spoke with Dr. Holly and, and she she expects that, you know, AISD is going to continue to accommodate those who need meals during the summer. Uh, you touched on seven school district touching the city of Austin. Is, is the same process happening with these other school districts as well? Um, and how is the city looking to supplement the additional need of supplying food resources during uh, the summer?
5: Well, I think we're 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 looking at uh, you know the city budget and trying to figure out how do we provide more resources. One example of that is that one we found that there was a need. Uh, There's actually a, um, a resolution coming through. I'm not, I believe it's today where we provide uh, meals to caregivers, uh, and we've been focusing primarily on the Eastern Crescent. So not just Austin ISD, but looking at Dell Valley and Pflugerville ISD and part and possibly Manor as well. Because what we're finding is that they're caregivers who are in need of, of food as well. And so there is um, actually money that's being allocated towards that. But, of course, there's the partnership with the Central uh, Texas uh, Food Bank. Uh, they have different locations throughout the city. And they've been uh, – uh, I went to their website because I wanted to make sure I was up to speed. But they said they're serving about uh, 48,000 uh, families per week. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that it's actually higher than that, because I know there's been some lines at different uh, food banks for folks trying to get uh, access to food. Um, But one of the challenges we're still dealing with is uh, what happens if you don't have transportation to get the food? How do you get food to maybe elderly people who are having difficulty leaving the home at all? Um, what happens if you don't have family members who are willing or able to bring you food? And so that's been a bit of a gap that we've been trying to respond to. But that's where the partnerships with like the United Way, with uh, the Austin Urban League, um, Austin Area Urban League, and other partners across the city uh, go. Go Austin, uh, almost Austin, and try to work because to be honest, again, bureaucracies are not meant to move quickly. And so having partnerships with nonprofits in the community who already have those relationships are the best uh, t- tool. And so I think what's going to come down to, again, is the city providing resources when possible, but also working with the federal government using resources that they allocate for these types of activities as well.
0: And so in understanding that all of these issues, digital divide, um, access to food, access to shelter, all of these are basic needs for students. And so uh, there's, again, all families have had challenges. A lot of families have had challenges accessing these basic needs. And then the city, the district, everyone is doing their best to help provide these resources. And so thinking about just the economic, tra- the not the economic trajectories, but the educational tra- trajectories of disadvantaged students, um, how will either a lack of access to these basic resources in the future or just the continued challenges to access to these resources? How do you think that will affect the educational outcomes of these disadvantaged students?
5: I, I, I don't want to be pessimistic because I have a lot of faith in our communities to be resilient and creative, and innovative. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't have the foundational things that we're talking about, like food and housing and access to uh, health care that's affordable or free, these are really barriers, right? And we're talking about an institutional system that was in place before the pandemic. It was a, a systemic uh, 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 inequities and racism that's still there, right? Hence the disparities that we're talking about. And so what my fear and anxiety is, is that we're going to see uh, some reductions as far as uh, kind of the educational outcomes that were, we're uh, uh, we, we've already been worried about before the pandemic, and I think they're going to be exacerbated because again, what happens during pandemics and major events? We see that we saw this in New Orleans, where people who benefit the most during the uh, the, the, the their their, their, their situation, the the, the the folks who benefit the most tended to be people who had uh, more means, uh, who tended to be not people of color. And so the ones who suffered the most were the ones who were of color who were most vulnerable, of the elderly. Um, and so I would expect those same kinds of things are going to be in place here. But I think the advantage is, is if we know this is still a problem, we know that institutional racism still exists, it doesn't go away because we're you know, we hugging each other and thinking, oh, kumbaya, we're on the same page, but those those systems are still in place, then to me that's, a, that's an opportunity to say, listen, let's continue to focus our time and attention and our resources on vulnerable communities who tend to be uh, br- uh, black and brown communities. And if that's the case, let's start there instead of, again, seeing them as a the last area. Let's let's say that instead of waiting for the numbers to prove what we already know, just start there so we can, uh, uh, as they say, flatten the curve so we're not seeing black and brown communities having to suffer as much. So maybe they're suffering, but it's not to the degrees that I'm fearful that we're going to find happening. And so those are, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic about it because I just know what thing, how things are, but I do think it's an opportunity for the city, the state, and, the, and federal government to say, hey, because we know this, let's take some action now to prevent or at least Stymie some of those effects that may happen over a period of time. And we're not just talking about the next several months. I want to be clear. We're talking about the next several years.
1: The whole food production line has been impacted by COVID, making it difficult for purchase points like food banks and schools to get what they need. Farm and agricultural workers in places like meat packing facilities continue to be disproportionately affected by COVID, impacting their lives and their families.
0: Now, as we said before, we're going to leave each episode on a positive, uplifting note. I think the note that we can leave it on is that people are recognizing that we need to take care of each other. We need to find new systems and find systems that work for everyone and not just for those in power. Mercedes had a great point about this.
2: I think um, the I think that. I think whiteness has taught us respectability politics in a way that is dangerously optimistic. Um, And I think that the pandemic has stripped away our ability to be comfortable in dangerous optimism. This term dangerous optimism was coined by Brother Martin Luther King when he spoke at Kansas State University. He was at last, it was our last university that he spoke at before he was assassinated. And so of course um we um uh, it's a tradition when you join the black Student Union leadership to listen to you know all of the historical things that have happened on campus that are black, <laughs> and so we listen to that speech every year and um when I was on campus and and the thing that always stuck out to me the most was dangerous optimism and how we are dangerously optimistic about the state of our reality like like this 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 is not we need to have so much more of a sense of urgency for like self and like like improving the world around us but we are like it's like rose colored goggles goggles or something and i really feel like the pandemic stripped that from every human in america and that that's visible in the response of white folks going up there the white supremacists who want to go out there and talk about some of their freedoms is getting snatched all the way to School districts trying to put buses in the parking lots, you know, that have wi- Wi-Fi, you know, like everybody was optimistic about the state of this country dang- and to the point to where it was dangerous for us. And now we're in a disaster, period. Black people have been dangerously optimistic about us continuous, continuously placing ourselves inside of these institutions that we know weren't built for us and still haven't been willing to change for us and we, and we, but we got to keep having you know this this optimism and 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 so i think it's been um that is the blessing in in the pandemic it's is stripping away that optimism so we can get to work um so you can realize the work that needs to be done so you can realize the state of your own family the state of your own life right like and how much power and control you really do have and engaging in these institutions because black people don't believe in it. They don't believe that they can engage in them and change them either. And so I think that um, the pandemic has opened up some space for that um, because white people are in flux. Their systems are all falling apart and we are used to not having to use them, period. Mm -hmm. And so now it's like, oh, okay, well, I've been going about my business anyway. (laughs)
4: <laughs> y'all
2: no <laughs> y'all would y'all didn't want me up in there no way. You know, and so it's like black people realizing like we gonna be alright regardless. We always been alright and we need to figure out how to take care of our own. Like it seems like a real dias diasporic feeling. I might have made that up, but it feels feel like it's in the energy.
1: That's a wrap for this episode. Next week, we will be taking a look at how students dealt with getting access to technology in order to continue distance learning. Some of the largest equity gaps have emerged in tech.
0: We heard from listener M. Thompson that they've been really frustrated with the systems, saying their students with disabilities need assistance beyond technology. In an email to us, they said, a computer doesn't help them. They need one-on-one help. Social interaction is also a must. Please consider tutors for the learning disability children. They can't do it alone. We want to say thank you, M. Thompson, for sending that note to us. And if you'd like your voice heard, please email BlackLivesTexasPodcast at gmail.com and send us a note or a voice memo. Again, we want to hear from you.
1: Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin.
0: It is hosted by me, Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe and produced and edited by Mariah Gossett with music by Upper Reality.
1: We will be back next week. Hasta la próxima semana.
0: And have a great week, y'all.